Thank you, Cliff. If you have your Bibles this morning, we'll be in Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 13. Continuing our series, going through the book of Mark. We covered Mark 10, 1 through 12 last week. This week, Mark 10, 13 through 31. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. In order to receive an inheritance, usually there are no strings attached. A relative dies, and you simply receive what they've set aside for you. It was not so for German poet Heinrich Heine, who left his entire estate to his wife Matilda in 1856 on the one condition that she must remarry, so that, quote, there will be at least one man to regret my death. Ouch. Similarly, in the case of Charles Miller, a Canadian attorney who died a childless bachelor, he left $568,106 to the mother who gave birth to the most children in Toronto in the 10 years following his death in 1928. That bequest prompted what Canadians called the baby derby, as mothers rushed out to try to win the fortune. Finally, in 1938, Four winners split the prize money after giving birth to nine babies in that decade. That is a much harder requirement 
than Henry Butt gave to his two sons, who were able to receive their inheritance when he died in 1862 on the one condition that they never sully their lips with a mustache. Each of these inheritances had some kind of condition, some kind of requirement that was attached to it. In the text today, we can see that there actually are some requirements for inheriting the kingdom of eternal life. Now, I want to be clear. It's not that you somehow earn your inheritance. It's not that you somehow earn what God has coming to you. It's not that you somehow earn the kingdom. It's not a list of actions you have to perform. But rather, without these conditions, without these requirements, you won't be receiving your inheritance. You don't qualify for God's kingdom. In the text today, we can see three requirements for inheriting the kingdom of eternal life. The first requirement for inheriting the kingdom of eternal life is a childlike faith. The kingdom belongs to those of childlike faith. Look at verses 13 and 14. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. How counterintuitive that point is. It goes against how we think through every other important part of our lives. The larger the decision, the more importance and responsibility involved, the less we want children to be the ones making that decision. The less children are so often the primary audience. There's a reason in our society that you can't drive until you're 16. You can't get a tattoo until you're 18. You can't rent a car until you're 25. It's our opinion, as a society generally, that the younger you are, the less seriously we take you. And evidently, the disciples were thinking this same way. They rebuked the people who were bringing children to Jesus. How dare you waste his time? What are you thinking? He's going to stop teaching these adults with all their influence, with all their power, with all their money, with all their intelligence, with all their abilities, just to lay his hands on your kid? Beat it. Get out of here. Get those kids out of his way. But that's not what he did. That's not what he was doing. Look at Jesus' response here in verse 14. When Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, No, no, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. While we may so often, like the disciples, think that children have no place here. They have no place in this room. They have no place in this church. They should go off and do their own thing. They should go off and have their own lessons. They should go off and have their own programming. Jesus isn't saying that. He's saying, no, no, let the children come. Let them hear. Let them see. Bring them to me closer. We so often think that they can't understand the importance of what is going on at church in this room that they aren't equipped to be able to follow Jesus. They won't be able to contribute much to our work. All they do is just drain our resources. They drain our volunteers. They drain our time. That's not how Jesus is thinking about it. He's saying, to such as them, that's who the kingdom of God belongs to. It belongs to those who have a childlike faith. And on this day, the day before we do VBS here at Pleasant Grove, What a helpful reminder that Christ has given us that though their bodies may be small, though their limbs may be tiny, their souls are just as important as yours. 
their souls are just as large as yours. We should value every chance we get to bring the gospel to children because there is a kingdom that is theirs and waiting for them. If they'll only come to Jesus, if they'll only repent and believe just like you did, just like you have, they have the same opportunity, the same chance. Yes, we do adjust some of what we do. Yes, we might use slightly different words. Yes, we'll probably play more games with them than we're ever going to do in this room. But they have the chance. We have to give it to them. We can't hinder them. We have to let them come. We have to bring them to him. And I think the same thing applies to new Christians. We've got to stop thinking of them as a drain on our resources. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know what it looks like to be a Christian. They don't know what it looks like to live the Christian life. They don't tithe. They don't volunteer. All they do is show up. Yeah, well, you did once upon a time. You were right there in that same boat once upon a time. We have to be willing to expend our resources for the sake of those who don't know how to do that yet. Children, new believers, those who have a childlike faith, we have to give every opportunity to let them come to Jesus and trust that they won't always be children. They're going to mature. They're going to grow. They're going to be what God has for them to be. But beyond just us mature Christians expending our resources for immature Christians or non-Christians, we have to remember that only those who come to Christ with the faith of a child, with a childlike faith, those are the only ones who are going to receive the kingdom. Not only does it belong to them, but Jesus goes even further than saying, yes, it does belong to them. He says something beyond that. Look at verses 15 and 16. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And so he took them, the children, in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. If you don't receive Christ's kingdom like a child does, you won't be entering it. If you don't come to him with that same faith, you won't be entering it. Children shouldn't just be valued in some ways. In this respect, particularly, they should be imitated. They're the example. They're the model. What's the the point that Christ is getting at here? I think we'll see some of what he means by that in the rest of our text. That's why these two stories are combined in our uh, text study today. But I think what Jesus means is you have to come to faith with as little inhibition, with as little guile, with as little pride, with as little ulterior motive as possible. My daughter is 11 months old, 11 months and two days. When she wants to be picked up, when she comes to me, she crawls over, she grabs my legs, she looks up at me, and she raises her hands like this. She's making it as abundantly clear as she possibly can without speaking because she can't. She's not that advanced. (laughs) She's making it as clear as she can. There's nothing else that she wants other than for me to pick her up. If that doesn't work, sometimes she'll grab my legs and climb up. Sometimes by the leg hair, she will grab it and use herself to stand up to get my attention and do the same thing. Because what she wants is clear. It's simple. She says, there's my dad and I want to be in his arms. So she just comes as simply as she can, as clearly as she can make it. 
she does exactly what she's supposed to do with the full expectation and faith that I'm going to do what she's asking me to do. She's not trying to manipulate me, though she does at other times. She certainly is capable of doing that. She's not hiding what she wants. She's making it as clear as she possibly can. And her focus is not on anything else. There is nothing else going on in her world in that moment other than, I want him to pick me up. She doesn't want to be taken into her father's arms to any other end. She knows that in her father's arms, that's where she feels safe. That's where she feels secure. That's where she is loved. So she comes to me, her father, with the full hope, the full expectation that I will not turn her away. And I think that's what a childlike faith looks like. She knows. That's where the security is. That's where the love is. So she asks for it. She comes right up. There's nothing else that she desires from me other than in that moment for me to show her my love. And I think that's what a childlike faith so often looks like. And having that kind of childlike faith is absolutely required for inheriting the kingdom of God. But there's another thing in our text that's required for inheriting the kingdom, and that is a greater goodness. It's the second requirement for inheriting the kingdom of eternal life in our text is a greater goodness. It does require a childlike faith, but it also means you must have a goodness that is greater which you, than what you already have. In fact, that goodness has to be the very goodness of God. Look at verses 17 and 18. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. The man is coming to Jesus asking what he must do to inherit eternal life. He recognized, look, this Jesus guy has a transcendent goodness beyond anything that this guy has ever seen. So if anyone knows how to get eternal life, if anyone knows what that's going to look like, what has to happen for that to occur, it has to be Jesus. He's asking, how am I supposed to be good enough to get eternal life? What do I have to do? What requirements do I have to fulfill? And what he's asking for is a list. He's saying, give me five steps that I can follow, and surefire, if I do these things, I will get to go to heaven. He wanted to know, all right, if I do this, if I don't do that, I'm going to make it. I'll make the cut. My scales will balance. And Jesus tells him two things by his answer. First of all, he says, look, me, the one you're coming to, Jesus, I am not just a good teacher. I am God in the flesh. You have to understand that before I answer anything else about your question. Because notice he doesn't answer his question immediately, right? He asks him a question, why do you call me good? Well, that has absolutely nothing to do with the question that the man asked Jesus. But he's making clear to him right from the get-go, look, if I am just a guy, if I'm just a man, even if I'm the best man you have ever seen or ever heard of or will ever meet or will ever walk this earth, if I am just a man, what good does that do you? If I'm just a man, how does that help you? Why do you call me good? Only God is good. He's pressing into the issue with the man's question. Only God is good. So if I'm just a man, just a good teacher, how am I supposed to help you out? If I'm good, as you say I am, then I'm God. And you have to recognize that. He said, I am good. I am God. 
And you can know that I am God because I am good. So he makes that very clear to the man right from the get-go. But then he switches from there and says, but also, it's not about your goodness. It's not about the things that you do. It's not about what you have to fulfill in order for you to inherit this kingdom. The route to eternal life for you doesn't just come by a good man telling you to do good things. No, you have to receive that goodness, that perfection from God himself, the only good one. If eternal life is about good and bad, then God gets eternal life and no one else does. He's the only one that's good. So if your goodness is what's required to get to eternal life, that means you're not getting it. Only God is good. You need his goodness for you to have any prayer and any hope. You need his goodness through Christ's perfect obedience. Look at verse 19. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Jesus makes the point even clearer in verse 19 that you don't just need goodness. You need God's perfect, greater goodness. God's goodness has resulted in this standard, the law, his commands, his directions given to his people. And Jesus brings a few of those out to point to everything else. He says, look, here are just a few examples. A few of the things you've got to do, if, you're, if you've got to be good enough to get into heaven, if you've got to be good enough to have eternal life, then you've got to perfectly do all of these things. He's highlighting the point that if your hope for eternal life is in your own goodness, if it's in your own obedience, it takes a perfect obedience to satisfy his law. You want eternal life based on your own goodness, that's fine, but you better be perfect. And I don't think you're going to make it. But before you start to think that the point of this sermon is that I am telling you, you got to be perfect. You got to do it. You got to try harder. You got to grab life by the horns and wrestle it to the ground. You got to make sure you're doing all these absolutely perfectly every second of every day from now until forever. And if you mess up in the past, oops, already too late. That's not what I'm saying. You don't earn your way to heaven. So let me disabuse you of that notion here and now. Galatians 2.16 says, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. That's eventually where we get to in this text today. That the guy's saying, I've done this perfectly. And Jesus says, first of all, you haven't. Second, that's not enough. By you white-knuckling all of this perfection, it doesn't matter. By works of the law is no one justified. You see, it absolutely does, though, take a perfect obedience and a greater goodness for you right now to receive your inheritance of eternal life. But the good news of the gospel is that rather than requiring that perfection of you, Jesus has accomplished and provided it for you. He has done that perfection. He has enacted his holiness. He has been good and perfect always. 
and he came down on earth and lived that good and perfect life and then died with it in your place and on your behalf so that you might have his perfection in the place of your imperfection. So now you are no longer justified by your works of the law, but rather through faith in Jesus Christ's perfect fulfillment of that law. It's through his work of perfect goodness, his perfect obedience, that you can be saved by having that work that he has done applied to you through repentance and belief. If you have faith, if you repent and believe, that's how you get it. It does require a greater goodness, but the greater goodness it requires isn't yours. It's his. You get eternal life not by your goodness, not by your obedience, but through his greater goodness and his perfect obedience. Now, what you do in response to that is just to follow Jesus. And if you're looking closely, that's what he tells the man in our text. Verses 20 through 22. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. He thought that he had nailed it. This young man who came to Jesus asking, what do I have to do to receive eternal life, thought that he was about to get a pat on the back. He thought Jesus was going to say, good job. I'll see you in roughly 50 years. Eternal life. Just waiting for you, buddy. That's not what he got. It's not the answer he received. Instead, he was told that whatever he did was never going to be enough. And it never was if he wasn't following Jesus. And ultimately, following Jesus, just getting Jesus, that wasn't enough for him. He chose the world when he could have had life in Christ. He may have had some kind of faith. He may have actually on some level believed, ish, that Jesus was who he said he was. But he certainly didn't have a childlike faith. Because a child would rather follow the one they love than hold on to anything else that this world might have to offer. I I hate to use my child as the example in every uh, opportunity, but I've only had one for 11 months. So you've got to bear with me for a little bit. When she is playing in her room, she is content as long as either me or my wife are in there with her. She could have all of her toys laid out in front of her. Everything she could ever dream of on a carpeted floor in an air-conditioned space. But if we stand up and walk out, the toys don't matter anymore. She follows us. We're going to the kitchen. We're going to do absolutely nothing that concerns her or is ever going to help her out. It doesn't matter. She wants to be where we are. She wants to follow the one that she loves over and above anything else. No matter how many brightly colored tiles are right in front of her that she can play with and chew on and throw around, doesn't matter. Because the one that she loves isn't there. And that's what was missing in this man's life. 
That's what he didn't understand in this story. He wasn't willing to follow the one he claimed to love from room to room. And by that, we know, he didn't actually love the one he was claiming to love. Jesus wasn't giving him a list saying, okay, you did those things. Here's one more. If you'll do that, now you're going to do it. He was pointing out, no, 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 you're following the list. You're not following me. Look, if you're following me, yes, you're going to do these other things I say on the list. But I am the point of the list, not the list itself. Because it's my obedience, not yours. It's my perfection, not yours. My goodness, not yours. The man thought that he was going to get eternal life by following those other requirements, by following that other standard, by resting in his own goodness. And he forgot that what he needed was a greater goodness, the goodness of God. The final point today is that inheriting the kingdom of eternal life requires... Not only a childlike faith, not only a greater goodness, but it also requires a spirit of poverty. Because a focus on this world simply will not do it. Look at verses 23 through 25. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children. How difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. A focus on this world will not do it. That's why it was so hard for this rich man to enter God's kingdom. Because he had so much to distract him. When this world has given you riches, fame, comfort you're probably just not that interested in whatever another world might have to offer you. Especially if in order to gain that other world, you're going to have to leave. You're going to have to lose everything that you have in this one. That's what the guy's problem was. He said, I've already done everything you've asked. So now I'll do whatever you tell me. Just the one more thing. Jesus says, all right, sell all you have. Give it all up. Everything that you've accumulated and follow me. Uh, all right, I'll do whatever you tell me to do, except that. Except that thing. Anything else, that's totally fine. But that's one step too far. That's the thing I actually like. That's the thing I actually adore. He was too focused on this world to give this world up that he might gain the next world. He's calling his disciples, Jesus is, in verse 24 to him. And he's calling them children. Connecting it back to the story that we just read earlier in our text. That the man wasn't coming with a childlike faith. He was coming with an adult-like faith. He was coming with a transactional understanding that if I do these things, you'll give me those things. He wasn't coming with a childlike faith. But Jesus is calling his disciples' children, in verse 24, to remind them that that is how they have to receive his teachings, like a child would. They have to have that childlike faith that loves and trusts and is focused simply on him rather than the adult-like concerns of riches, the adult-like concerns of the trappings of this world, the adult-like concerns of their own comfort. A childlike faith is a faith that has a spirit of poverty, And I fully understand that it is easy for a lot of us 
when we hear that we have to give up our riches for the kingdom of God to think that that applies to somebody else. If you ask someone, how much money do rich people have? The definition they give is usually like one tax bracket higher than they are. They are rich. I am not. They have a lot. I don't. It's easy for us to do that. It's easy for us to hear this and say, yeah, rich people should hear this. Rich people should understand that they need to be able to give up everything for the sake of God and his kingdom. We're all fine with rich people paying their fair share as long as that's not me. As long as I'm not the one who has to do that. But I think we too often downplay our own means when we come to these texts because it can make us uncomfortable to think that we may be too in love with this world. We may be too focused on what we have. We may not recognize the riches that we actually have. Even the middle class has so many people below you who are actually in true poverty. A one-eyed man is rich in a world of blind people. We can't hear this saying of Jesus. We can't hear what he's telling us here in this text and think that applies to somebody else. Because it always applies to us. There's always something that we love about what we currently have that we don't want to give up to follow Jesus. Just like this man had. We can be too in love with this world and all that this world has to offer. And on the flip side of that, I also know that there are some of us in this room who legitimately do not have a lot. Who legitimately do not have the means that they would be qualified as rich in anyone's definition. And I hope that you'll hear this how it's intended. It could be that God is not giving you the riches that you may desire as a way to love you and care for you. He may be blessing you by not giving you money. I work really hard with our money to make sure that we are living within our means, to make sure that we are preparing for our future. But there's always that little voice in the back of my head saying, be careful. Financial independence is not worth your soul. Getting just a little bit more money is not worth losing your soul. There's a commentary that I have read over and over throughout this series in Mark. And every time it talks about Money. Every time it talks about poverty, he always, always makes this point. Jesus was poor. And yet we so often look down on the poor. We so often look down on those who do not have the means that we do. We so often think that they must have done something wrong to get in the state that they're in. And we so often think simultaneously with that, that we're not rich. But Jesus was poor. He was born to a poor family. He had a modest blue-collar job, and then he walked around in the desert for three years with no place to lay his head. So whenever you struggle with money, whenever you qualify as someone of poverty, whenever that describes you, make sure that you don't feel any less than 
Make sure you don't feel like no one knows what it's like. Because Jesus knows what it's like. Foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He knows what it's like to be poor, even though he had the abundance of riches. The cattle on a thousand hills belonged to him, and yet he chose to live as a poor person. So that should inform all of us in this room, both the poor and the non-poor, that we have dignity, though we are poor, that Christ lived like we did, and that it is so hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven because they have so much to distract them, and God hasn't given you those distractions. And on the flip side, those of us who are not poor should remember that Jesus was that we should love those who are, that we should help those who are, that we should come alongside those who are, and that we should always, always, always be willing to give up whatever riches we might have for the sake of his kingdom. Because if he asks that of us, he is always going to give us more than he has asked us to give up. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. A focus on this world will not get you into the kingdom. The power of man also will not get you into this kingdom. Verses 26 and 27. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. The disciples are so astonished because they're thinking with a worldly perspective. They're, they're thinking, what do you mean? A rich person can't even do this? What am I supposed to do? What do I have to give? How in the world am I supposed to make it into the kingdom if a rich person can't even do it? What am I supposed to do, Jesus? And he tells them, no, no, no. It's not by the power of man that your salvation comes. It's by the power of God. And nothing is impossible with God. Even a camel passing through the eye of a needle is possible with God. Even a rich man entering the kingdom of heaven is possible with God. Even a dirty, rotten sinner like Nathan Miller can be saved by grace through faith with the power of God. The power of man won't do it. But the power of God can and will. It takes forsaking everything else that you have forsaking everything else that you might hold over and above him and his kingdom. And that only occurs, it only occurs that you are able to inherit eternal life by forsaking everything else in your way. Verse 28, Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. See, Peter sees what's happening. He understands what's happening in this text and says, well, Jesus, we look pretty poor to me. If it's so difficult for a rich man, then it looks like you've got 12 guys right in front of you who should have no problem. And he also, just like the rich young man, is looking for a pat on the back because of his worldly condition. The one man wanted it because he was rich and good. Peter wants it because he's poor and good. But that's not what Peter, that's not what Jesus tells him. Somewhere within what Peter is saying here, there must have been a slight little hint of regret. Just a small, tiny smidge of an idea that Peter feels like maybe they're having to give up a little bit too much. Just a little bit more than they should have to. 
Because look at how Jesus responds in the rest of our text. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. He's emphasizing that it's worth it. Whatever it takes, it is worth it. While he's also acknowledging that they legitimately have given up a lot. To follow Jesus, it may take giving up houses. It may take giving up brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for Jesus' sake and for the gospel. And he's acknowledging, look, this isn't easy. It's not a road that anyone really wants to walk. But what it is, is the sacrificial way, the sacrificial life of a true disciple of Jesus. But he's also acknowledging that when you give all of that up, whatever means you might have in this world, whatever you might have to give up for the sake of his name and his gospel, you will receive back hundredfold and with eternal life. And he slips persecutions in there. It's a nice little prepositional phrase that you weren't expecting. If you're careful, you might miss it. Yes, the the giving up was hard. It does take a lot. And some of the gaining, that's going to be hard too. But he's telling them, he's emphasizing to them that it's absolutely worth it. It's worth it to lose everything, to gain even more in him. They won't receive anything, though, without having a spirit of poverty amidst a land of riches. They have to be willing to forsake it all, Everything that he's possibly given them for his sake and for the gospel. In the Sermon on the Mount on Matthew 5, Jesus begins with this phrase that you've likely heard before. Matthew 5, 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In order to inherit that kingdom, that kingdom of eternal life, you have to approach him as one who is poor in spirit. It belongs to those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Just like it also belongs to those who have a childlike faith. Just like you actually receive it by having God's greater and perfect goodness applied to you on your behalf. That's the good news that we have this morning. That there is an inheritance waiting for you. You must simply receive it. The childlike faith with his greater goodness and by giving up whatever it might take to possibly qualify for that eternal reward that he has waiting for you. It's worth it, though. It's worth it. Let's pray. God, thank you for this day. Thank you for all that you've done for us, Lord. Thank you for giving us this inheritance. We didn't earn it. We didn't do anything to deserve it. And yet you give it to us anyway. Thank you for giving us the faith that we need in order to believe. Let us receive it like children. No hidden motives. No other ends. Just you. Because getting just you is enough. 
Thank you for completing the perfect goodness, fulfilling your good law on our behalf and in our place. Without that perfection, we would have no standing before you, but you've given it to us. It's the free gift of grace to your people through repentance and faith. Thank you for that. Help for us to forsake whatever it might take for us to receive that reward. Help for us to give up everything else that we might have in order to store up our treasure with you in heaven. Let us maintain a spirit of poverty, knowing that those who are poor in spirit, it's to them that the kingdom of heaven belongs. Let that be a descriptor of us today and every day. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.